Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Alex Hennett, most recently the practice professor and co-director of the Centre for Systems Innovation at Griffith University and now the executive in residence of that centre, uh, who's recently moved back to New Zealand um, and who in New Zealand is also, but working, I have to say, really in a global context, is director of Rocket Knight, which is the sort of practical implementation part of Alex's interest in this general space about systems transformation and Pocket Knife uh, aspires to better to build better pictures for better futures by exploring pathways to get there and enabling people to organise and act. It's a wonderful combination, Alex, of the broader thinking and framing of how we think about systems transformation and innovation and the practical application of how it's done. So welcome to the Menzies Leadership um, Forum and I'm very excited uh, to have this chat with you specifically about the work that the Menzies Foundation's powered most recently that you've led, which is the Discovery Report on Shaping Innovation Futures. Yeah, look, I think the origins of it came from two places. Um, one was recognising, um, which I think a lot of us um, are, are seeing, that the, the big challenges that we're facing now and will continue to face in the future are systemic in nature. So how do we start to organize and act more systemically, um, you know, in, in the face of those challenges? How do we actually go about doing that work? And the second was recognizing that, um, as I say, a lot of people are seeing this. And so there's a lot of rhetoric and talk about systems change and systems innovation. But quite often people are speaking about different things. And sometimes they're speaking about the old things with new language. So what we really wanted to do with this exploration was find practical examples around the world and our region, and our region being Australasia, of where systems change was happening in practice. And by um, better understanding how those initiatives, networks, um, approaches were actually, you know, what they were doing and how they were doing it, it would give us a sense of, um, you know, what is the kind of the commonalities in this practice but also give us some insights into how do we go about supporting more of this work. So it was learning from practice in order to inform how we create new innovation infrastructures to support systems change. And Alex, you know, as you said, there's globally in Australia, pretty well anywhere you go, people are talking about systems change and systems transformation. Largely in response, I think, to the complexity or the wickedness, some some people call them problems that the world's facing that are requiring new ways to think and work. The report specifically aspired to uncover the conditions we need to accelerate regenerative and distributive futures. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by regenerative and distributive futures? Yeah, and the imperative of that? Sometimes I wonder, yeah, sometimes I, you know, I wonder we don't help ourselves the language because, you know, um, while there is some very specific meaning there, I guess unless you understand the specific meaning, it just sounds a bit jargonistic. Um, so what we're really meaning by regenerative is healthy, 
you know, systems which, you know, can sustain and heal and grow themselves rather than um, systems which are in, you know, decline, which will then kind of, you know, undermine, you know, sort of, you know, prospects of us and the natural environment and, you know, many of the things which just enable us to have some half-decent quality of life. The distributive element is around fairness and equity. So really what we're trying to say is, you know, how do we organise an act to do things yeah, towards better futures, which are going to be able to be healthy and sustain themselves and be more equitable and fair in their nature? You know, so it's a broad way of thinking about like, that sounds like a good place to aim for. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I I think in 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 a pure sense, that's the case. Some may say that that, you know, that there's a sort of, philosophical or a, um, you know, that that's this idea of equity and this idea of distribution has a sort of political economy aspect to it, which is about, you know, how resources should be distributed or, um, um, you know, how we, you know, what the sort of paradigm is that we, you know, is capitalism broken, these sorts of things. And I, I think some in some ways... That's a bit of a misnomer in the broader sense of what we mean by regenerative and distributive. Uh, the sort of way the Menzies Foundation work is seeing this is that the scale of the problems and uh, the complexity of solving the problems actually require an orientation towards regenerative and distributive because polarisation or different sorts of conceptualizations of resources isn't enough to cut through the complexity of actually how we go about solving the problem. Does that make sense, Alex, in terms of... It, it does. I mean, I think distributive can be more than just, you know, resources. You know, I think voice, you know, who gets to determine, you know, um, their own futures, our collective future. So it's distribution of power as well. But I, I think also there's some, you know, basic stuff we just have to own. Um, you know, we're coming um, out of a recent history in any real, you know, um, scope of, uh, of time, which is being defined by, you know, uh, slavery, land theft, accumulation of wealth, often by ill-begotten means. And even today, if we're looking at like the climate crisis, you know, 90% of the world's emissions are generated by less than 10% of the world's population. So I think, you know, those issues of, of equity do stand. But I also think, you know, to take a point across, I understand that we have to sort of think about distributive in more than just resources. It is also around, you know, like who gets to decide and who gets to to, to shape our individual and collective futures. And the implications of that, of not doing that, are siloed, more polarised ways of getting in the way of the deep sort of collaboration required to solve those problems at scale. Is that, yeah, look, is that a part of what you're saying as well? Yeah, this isn't just motherhood and apple pie. I mean, history kind of tells us when you get things which are too imbalanced, you tend to have, you know, some kind of self-correction, and those things usually go badly. So, so climate in the context of climate change, how does that play out in climate change, for example? Um, well, I mean, I think it's going to play out in any number of ways, and, you know, we're, we're seeing that sort of manifest on a global sense, but also more locally. Um you know, we're going to see large, um, you know, sort of parts of the world which, you know, are both chronically and acutely affected by uh, climate impacts. That's probably going to unsettle where people live and, you know, how livelihoods are stained, movements of people. Um, at, at, at a local level, and I know this is true in Australia as well, we're, we're now having to think about some communities which, have, you know, have been consistently impacted by 
um, climactic events, and we're having to start to think about notions of managed retreat. You know, so how do you know? So there's the real practical stuff in the systems um, work when you have something like a managed retreat where any number of actors have to sort of determine how collectively we move whole communities. How do we negotiate those things without, say, the strong arm of government just coming in and saying, right, if you live there, you now live in there, or you no longer have a home? So I think a lot of this complexity is not just aspirational towards better futures. It's also around how do we organize um, and negotiate some of these things which are you know, going to be you know, quite inevitable. Um, and so we need to bring a systems lens, a lens you know, to, to these very present problems as well as aspire to do things better. Uh, and, and the um, particular purpose of our work together, this discovery of the um, report on shaping innovation futures, really posits the case or explores how we might think about greater investment in systems innovation to build out the context in which to allow deep collaboration and the coming together of multiple perspectives um, to you know to address problems at scale. Innovation is a much bandied term. What do you, what do you what does systems innovation mean, and why is systems innovation potentially a lever or a lens into the sorts of contexts and platforms we might need to build to work on these very complex challenges? I the way I'll probably respond to that is um, a lot of the innovation systems we have at present you know, have been focused around the development of new technologies and new firms, which can then commercialize and scale those technologies. So if you look at sort of the innovation ecosystems we have, be them state or national, they kind of, you know, use very much kind of often privilege outside of um, initial R&D, things like startups, and then, you know, you know what scales those, the flow of capitals into things which can just get bigger. But, you know, we're, we're effectively looking at solutions being scaled through the medium of organizations. When we're thinking about how we, um, you know, reshape the cities we live in or regenerate whole landscapes, um, you know, um, transition, you know, kind of the way that we grow uh, and distribute um, food, you know, those things aren't solvable. Um, by individual kind of organizations or just sort of really smart, singular ways of doing things. So the big distinction I'd make when we're talking about systems innovation is recognizing there are any number of actors, usually cross-sector, that have to find new ways of working together towards some sort of shared uh, shared goal. So it's often about... Um, I suppose the multi-dimensional aspects of different activities, how those activities complement and work together, and then how do we organise when the, the, these things are going on and adapt over time? So yes, it's about doing new things, but it's also around information flows, it's also around governance, it's also around speaking shared language, it's also about having some kind of collective a vision about kind of what might be possible and where we want to to shift to. And that's some very, very different way of thinking about innovation than thinking about a new technology which, you know, you know, can find a market niche or opportunity, making it work well and then scaling it, you know, you know, um, you know, to, to, to its maximum capability. Very different way. So as a result, if we want more systems innovation, if we accept that we're going to need to transform our, you know, uh, mobility systems, our cities, our food systems, our energy systems, 
we need fundamentally new innovation infrastructures to facilitate that because supporting startups can be part of it, but there's a, a, a much bigger picture that we actually have to think about creating the conditions to facilitate. Um, so startups is certainly one aspect of that innovation thing, but if I think about how innovation plays out in, for instance, the way philanthropy supports you know, innovation more generally is, you know, more often than not it's also particular for purpose organisations having a view on what needs to be done to change the system and people funding programs or activities that underpin that view. It's not just startups in the innovation. I mean, what do you mean by startups? It's not just startups in the sense of the sort of entrepreneurial startup that's a for-purpose organisation. It's also more generally about how other players, you know, government takes a view on how to solve or bring in a new way for the system to work. Uh, Not-for-profits do that. Um, business in its own way um, does that. But I think what the defining thing for systems innovation for me is not one, it's not siloed. It's how you coalesce multiple perspectives around a systems challenge and bring new ways of thinking and working collaboratively to address that challenge. I mean, am I making yeah, it look, too simplistic? No, like, no, just no, when you say it, startup, it no, sort of no, takes me to a place and it's broader no, than that. Yeah, I know, I know. But, um, and I, I completely agree with you. I reference startup because they do loom large in the way that we've characterised innovation, you know, kind of in recent times. Um, but I would draw, yeah, uh, you know, the similarities that you, that, that you did in terms of, yes, we also have sort of innovation you know, in the social sector and sort of innovative, innovative funding practices by philanthropic organisations. But the thing that I'd say that they have in common, which she references silos, is quite often we're talking about individual organisations trying to tackle singular things, um, whether it's a commercial investor who's seeking to maximise their financial returns or a philanthropic investor who has their own interests and focus around the causes they want to get behind. These things tend to be quite fragmented and, and, uh, and uh, you know, and often isolated from each other. And as to your point, the big shift that we're trying to make um, with systems innovation is saying we've got a kind of shared, you know, sort of, you know, big, you know, goal or sense of where we want to get to, but that is going to require any number of activities and the relationship between activities to make sense. So we need to get out of the silos, these idea of sort of single point solutions and think about how do we create uh, you know, sort of constellations of solutions which collectively work together towards that more transformational change. When I say transformational, it's not just the direct impact of something, it's the narratives we use, it's the power relationships, you know, it's the information flows, it's the norms. So it's not just the thing, the direct impact of the thing that we produce, it's, you know, kind of the whole kind of system of the way that humans interact with each other around those things. So I, I want to unpack that in more detail but the whole purpose of the report I suppose is to scope that space whatever that platform is that moves our thinking around innovation away from almost you know intervention to how do we understand how, how innovation plays out across the system not just in terms of uncovering or um, supporting a potential solution but actually implementing that in a dynamic way that takes account of how you drive systems forward. Is that a reasonable, is that a reasonable, simple way of thinking about it? Um, and, you know, and the challenge is there's little which is simple about this. But what we try to do in the whole exploration, uh, you know, written up in the report, was finding initiatives which are live, 
you know, which are doing this systems work in practice, whether that's kind of, you know, a lot of them are, are fairly early, even if they're promising. But things like Regen Melbourne, who's trying to provide a platform for deep collaboration, you know, across this, you know, obviously um, the city of Melbourne, um, you know, things like the future of fish who are trying to sort of change, you know, kind of um, coastal economies, which are heavily dependent or, you know, sort of on fisheries to be more sustainable over the longer term. The city of Valencia, which is using a mission-led approach, Again, to sort of, you know, fundamentally transition that city to be a better place to live for its citizens, thinking around empowerment, enterprise, creativity, and sustainability. So this complex stuff, we said, let's go and have a look at what's happening in, you know, now. Let's figure out what they're doing and how they do it. And as a result of better understanding, you know, sort of, you know, how these things work, then perhaps we can have a, a you know ton, a, a more informed conversation about how we support more of these things to to, to take shape and uh, get off the ground. So the report is a direct call to action for capital holders, decision makers, innovators, and influencers. I quote: "In a much more specific way, I also think it's a call out to government, not-for-profits, philanthropy, investors, business." actual entities to perhaps challenge themselves around how they what they think about in terms of innovation, the lens they bring to innovation and how they might reconceptualise the role they might play, Alex, in these big challenges in terms of coalescing in, in new ways. That's, I sort of want to get to the meat of anybody reading the report or listening to this. My aspiration, the Menzies Foundation's aspiration as a catalytic philanthropist is what are, what what understanding do we need to build amongst those challenged by these problems to step into the uncertainty and ambiguity, which we'll get into a little while of working in this way, uh, to see the the role that they can play in systems innovation, as a as opposed, I would say, to their role as innovators. Does that make sense, Alex? That- no, it makes. And so, like, we use kind of the term capital holders to basically be able to have the breadth of like doesn't matter if you're sitting, you know, in government, you know, the com- you know the private sector, sort of commercial investment, philanthropy, or, you know, large NGO. If you have resources and if you have power to determine where those resources are directed, they are the people that we tried, you know, wanted to reach here. Because there is a reality here that unless we actually start to work with the people who get to determine where resources flow, we're not going to be able to start to channel um, the resources which are needed into these new ways of organising and acting. All the initiatives that we engaged with came up with a point is, you know, we are making um, a lot of ground here, you know, like we're making a lot of progress, but all of us don't have the type of resource we need, the type of investment we need to do what we know we can do. So there was a fundamental mismatch between basically the people that hold resources, even if they were talking about the aspiration of supporting systems change and the reality of what resources were flowing to these systems initiatives. And so it was that kind of kind of gap that um, I think we, we need to bridge. And what we wanted to do with this report was to be able to engage the people that you know have resources and power and say, if you want to sort of invest in more promising solutions, these here's some good information to guide how you might reform, you know, how you think about these things and, and, and how you allocate capital. 
And certainly in the Menzies Foundation work, and I think in this context, often resources become a proxy for dollars. But actually, there's far greater or wider conceptualization of resources in the context of systems innovation, because it might be knowledge, or it might be lived experience, or it might be other things. Um, I think that's a really, it's that's a very key point, um, Alex, that is, I think, inherent in the shift that we're trying to understand and support in the sense that so often it's about powers related to money, do you know what I mean, or to capital, but actually systems innovation requires a different, a much broader opening up of how we think about resources and what it is we're trying to capitalise, how we conceptualise what we need to capitalise to do the systems change. No, absolutely. So, I mean, underlying the potential of this work is, um, you know, I think the investment of all the capitals, you know, human capital, skills and capabilities, social capital, shared understanding and ways of, you know, kind of uh, working together, political capital to create the enabling policies. Um, a lot of the, these things obviously show up in tangible landscapes and places, be them cities or or or, or, or more, um, uh, you know, sort of, you know, sort of uh, regional zones. So all these capitals have to work together or all kind of come, um, are mixed up in um, the potential to achieve some degree of systems change. But, so I recognise that we need all the capitals, but there's also something which is um, very clear that financial capital is, you know, is imbued with power. It, you know, financial capital is a huge enabler and we are not channeling that enabler to support the, um, you know, the other capitals in these endeavours. So yes, I'll take your point. It is the commingling of all the capitals, but also it is, you know, we, we need the financial capital to serve systems change rather than, you know, basically continue to sit on the sideline and pick and choose which bits of it it wants. So, so the question then becomes, if, if we accept that we need to build these new innovative containers in which to contemplate systems transformation that require new forms of coalescence and new forms of activity to unlock the potential of joined up collaborative interventions to drive systems reform. The report then really, as you've said, looks at people doing that work so that we can learn about what we might, the conditions or the preconditions or the platforms we might need to build in order to work in this way. Um, the sort of insights I think the report really focused, we really concluded based on that analysis um, is we really do need to reimagine how we organise and act. We've got to move from specific solutions we've discussed, we've got a solution for X uh, to much more systems of innovation and finally, it really asks questions about what the underlying conditions and infrastructures are that enable people to experiment in acting ways that are generally transformative. And I just wonder, Alex, if we can spend the next little while actually talking about the sorts of um, characteristics that you saw in, the, in looking at the examples of emergent practice in this regard around the world and the sort of ways that we can think about how to support people to work 
in this way at scale, if that makes sense. So yeah, so I mean, so maybe just go through some of the key findings around, you know, how do how do these systems initiatives, you know, work? What were the the, the things common in their origin story? And this kind of relates back to the fu- the funding piece as well. So firstly, these things just don't come out of thin air, right? They take time. You know, there has to be some kind of core cause which mobilizes people to sort of want to, you know, kind of change things and recognize they need to work together to, you know, um, to pursue that change. But the organization takes a long time. You know, Mission Valencia, you know, in order to get the board buy-in from all the different sectors in that city, took well over 18 months just to get to the start line. And so from a funding point of view, now that they were, I guess that they had an enlightened city government, which was prepared to sort of, you know, you know, back a lot of that work. But, you know, for, for initiatives which don't, you know, sort of, you know, have, you know, kind of that, that putting in government, we can see sort of that a lot of say, you know, well, who picks up the, the tap for that? You know, um, a lot of the initiatives spoke to um, their funders want to see specific activities which lead to specific outcomes which they care about. And, you know, being able to say, listen, we need two years of resourcing in order to join the dots, have the conversations and get us, you know, to a place where we might actually do something was just too hard. Okay. So that whole idea of, you know, systems readiness, self-organization and taking time to get to the place where something can actually, you know, material can start to happen is really important. Within that, you need the individuals that have the capabilities to do that convening. Okay, you know, and we heard how attritional those roles were, always trying to join things together, always trying to sort of, you know, make sense of different perspectives and, you know, the ways that um, people saw the world and their various interests. So, you know, it's not just an investment in the process, it's investment in the individual, which have a fairly unique set of capabilities to be those facilitators and bridge bakers and to, you know, hold the vision of what might be possible, but to make sure that they are supported and they're able to have livelihoods while they engage in this work, which, you know, is going to take a considerable time. Then we started to see... Now, that's your yeah. clarifying question at that point. So, that you know, in the, the sort of things that the report identifies... Um, that these types of emergent platforms exhibit, this idea of a bold ambition and providing spaces and platforms to be the thing that galvanises people from multiple perspectives to act. Who sponsors sponsors those, Alex? You mentioned, you know, who can sponsor those? Who should sponsor them? Like where are we seeing that coming from? Because it's not just one, I, I can make an argument it should be philanthropy, but the example showed government can sponsor it or a group of citizens can sponsor it. So when we say these things like develop a bold ambition that you align people around and provide the spaces and platforms that allows this work to unfold, practically where? Who does that? How how does that? And so what I was differentiating, what you just referenced there is something, you know, what do these things do? And we, 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 basically come up, came up with a range of common attributes, all these initiatives, you know, this is what they do. They'll be able to transmit and articulate, you know, a bold vision for transformation. Um, you know, an, an example of that, you know, with Regen Melbourne around um, making the Burrung River swimmable. You know, a bold ambition, like, and if that was to be realised, that would require significant structure and systemic change. But it's a thing a lot of people can buy into. But the thing is, that vision isn't just popped out of air. And so what I was talking about is how are those bold ambitions kind of, you know, you know, how are they, um, how do they manifest? 
and it is the slow work of kind of you know connecting different entities and actors with, within any given place or context and through those interconnections allowing sort of some kind of you know uh, collecting vision to surface and that's the thing that takes time now you're absolutely right that can completely come you know and like the thing these do have to be sort of owned by um you know citizens i think you know they do have to manifest from community but it's not that the public sector or the private sector is not part of our community you know we're, we're we are we are you know community with a big c but the thing is that you know it's also unrealistic to expect that those things just to um evolve and be sustained you know kind of on 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 love alone so movements, I think you quite often see, do come out of, you know, kind of love. There's a natural energy to them. But I think also movements, you know, kind of are quite fluid. They evolve and they settle down or they dissipate. What we're trying to talk about here is not just kind of a cause of a movement, but something which is more structured, which can facilitate material change around a whole material system, be it food, energy or, or, or urban living or anything else. And that does require investment in the people who can convene and the and and the the, the platforms, the infrastructures, the organisations, the networks, which those people then can work through to in, to ensure that there is this kind of collective sense making and collective organising over time. And I, I think mean, it's I, a really fundamental point because I think um, Alex often activism or advocacy becomes a proxy for the, that space. Do you know what I mean? Like people um, align with a cause they feel very strongly about, and they see it in more polarised contexts between there are certain actors or actions that I want to advocate against or a certain thing I want to advocate for. But the spaces that you're talking about, this bold ambition, this spaces and platforms for actors and stakeholders around share goals and leveraging collective intelligence to take action, is beyond activism. It's beyond activism. Activism could be a part, but again, it's like if you think about advocacy, that's a bit going back to our cause-based NGOs or our startups. It's quite singular in its purpose. So advocacy would be part of the mix, but but generally these things aren't companioning for one shift in legislation or policy or, or kind of, you know, or, or one investment behind a, a, a certain program or, or cause. What we're trying to do in these systems of initiatives is um, concurrently start to restructure a number of things which basically provide the foundations for how our societies work. We're trying to reform the policy agenda. We're trying to restructure financing, you know, sort of, you know, the mechanisms. We're thinking about how trading economies work. We're thinking about how people connect and how they see themselves. We're trying to develop uh, new norms um, and, you know, uh, anchored in values which relate to the the, the ultimate, the sort of, the, the goals that we're trying to pursue. So, the those things are complementary to each other, but they take a huge amount of surface area to be able to do those things concurrently and make sure they're interconnected. And this is coming back to the point of like, this work is incredibly difficult, but it is the work we need to do. Because unless we just think we leave things to chance and allow things to evolve naturally, and of course things will evolve naturally, transformation happens. You know, nothing's ever static. And much many of the systems we have, you know, actually work really well. You know, but what we're, what we're, uh, you know, what's unique about this time now, I think, and I think a lot of people probably think the same, is the interdependency, you know, between people, economy, uh, politics on a global level and the consequences of those things going wrong are too risky to leave to chance. So we're having to speed up 
um, I guess, um, you know, the rate of transformation, you know, towards intentional uh, goals, which reduce the risk of things just blowing up in our faces and hopefully yield, you know, sort of better outcomes for the 8 billion of us which occupy this planet and also non-human life. So, you know, there's something in this, Liz, which is saying, like, if we actually recognise the true scope and difficulty of the task we face, this is what it looks like. You know, and all the things that we're pursuing at the moment are often kind of wishful thinking or magical thinking because they're not getting us to where we need to go. So these initiatives are real. They're not magical thinking, but they're under-resourced. They're still learning how to do the practice. And both of those things, I guess, are things that we were seeking to change or at least contribute to the change of in terms of how do we start to channel more resource to, you know, these sort of, you know, um, uh, ways of working. And um, also how do we build our plates of awareness and practice around how to do these things well. The other really interesting one of the other really interesting characteristics that emerged in the case studies in the report, which I think is one of the ways to reframe this and to move it beyond, I think, conversations about systems change to deeply thinking about how you build these, you know, build out these opportunities. I suppose uh, is the is that the many of the examples that you looked at in the discovery cohort used a range of levers to incentivize, enable, and sustain multiple innovations. That it, that the singular requires, I have an idea that innovation looks like this, that these spaces need to accommodate, facilitate, surface, experiment, and play with multiple ranges of leaders for multiple innovations. That That's a really fundamentally key insight for me that does change the conversation about what these might look like. Can you just elaborate on that, Alex? Yeah. So let's maybe do, go specific. Look, look at, uh, I mentioned um, Mission Valencia. So alongside of the organising and the direction setting, there was a very deliberate sort of um, process of thinking, how do we build conditions across the cities which enable people to organise and act towards those, those goals? So that in, included physical spaces and civic spaces, it included innovation precincts, it involved different forms of financing, it involved changing um, the city-level procurement um, you know, policies to basically create markets for the type of things which were in line with the goals and actually give them long-term viability. There was capability building, um, you know, making basically democratizing innovation so more people could participate in and uh, felt they had the agency to actually innovate. It meant working with schools and indeed, you know, it, you know, the, the whole kind of, you know, building a coalition of change. They had more than 20,000 ambassador organisations across the city who were basically holding a similar goal, were feeling ownership of this you know, overall transformational project and would then contribute where they could. And of course then, you know, how do you make that make sense? And so thinking about the governance structures, thinking about information flows, the use of data and technology. So when we're talking about the enablers and levers, we're talking about all those things and they're not you know, they're familiar to us, but it's just about thinking about how do we um, uh, resource them and calibrate them and interconnect them to serve this transformational goal and the people who would be involved in basically doing the work that gets us there. So, you know, 
again, this comes back to we're very familiar, for, you know, with innovation infrastructures, you know, and I'll go there again, <laughs> you know, the kind of archetype is Silicon Valleys, and we've seen those kind of things replicated across Queensland and Victoria and, you know, state, national, city levels. But we're thinking about re-engineering those infrastructures and think about, you know, kind of what do we put in place which allow these kind of, as I say, these these uh, transformational ways of organising and acting to, to work better. Um, and, and Alex, certainly in the Menzies Foundation's very clear intent in how we deepen our own practice in working in this way around our catalytic aspirations, one of the things, which is another one, I think, of the key insights from the reports is the absolute priority of resourcing the mechanisms that build coherence. So you've mentioned things like network governance and information flows. We talk about things like how do you codify what's happening in the in the innovation system platform and build a uh, framing so that everybody aligns around what they're understanding and seeing and co-designs and co-creates what comes next, if that makes sense. But it's not very sexy to fund that, Alex. It's hard to talk about. Uh, you can measure that in terms of how deep the collaboration is or how much trust there is in the collaboration. You can certainly measure it in terms of, I think, probably what you achieve. It, you know, you can structure and orientate yourself to what success looks like. But there still seems to be considerable reluctance to understand those mechanisms and to appreciate that if you don't, I talk about it in our work at the Menzies Foundation. If you don't build the engine to drive the system innovation piece, then it's just so hard to get that coherence. So can you just talk a little bit about what you mean by network governance, information flows, not a, my idea, my sort of thing about codifying what's happening in the innovation process? Like that's just such an imperative but little understood, I think, or with a lack of preparedness to fund it. Um, all those things are, I completely agree with you on this. So, I mean, um, a fairly simplistic definition of governance, you know, and I for, forgot who said it, but, you know, is the process of making and enforcing decisions in the society or organisation. Making and enforcing decisions, that's a classical view of the way that we think about governance. Now, what happens when you don't have control and hierarchy as your main lever? to make and enforce decisions. What happens when you have basically a, a range of autonomous actors which have shared interests? You know, how do you negotiate risk? How do you negotiate reward? How do you hold shared accountability? How do you negotiate what's done where and by whom? So those kind of more kind of flat ways of interpreting the world and determining what to do next is is basically what I see as network governance, and you know, and so the mechanisms and the practices, you know, that um, need to be born to bear to do that well, I think is very much you know kind of work in progress. All the initiatives that we spoke to, you know, kind of basically had, and I think one of them sort of spoke about progressive, uh, progressive uh, um, you know, decentralization or progressive distribution. They kind of recognised that they wanted to sort of push power out, you know, eventually, but recognising that there had to be capacity in the system to be able to absorb that. So you had to start in a fairly centralised way and do that in a kind of enlightened way, almost like the, yes, we're still kind of, you know, centralising influence and control, but we're doing that in a benign way, which does raise questions about 
they all kind of pragmatically recognize that that's where you need to start. But ultimately, over time, if you're talking about city scale, system scale, recognizing a system can be any level, it can be, you know, household or it can be a, a world, you know, so systems are nested. But if we think practically about a lot of things that we're interested in changing cities, you know, regional food systems and blah, 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 how you start to get coherence across all those different actors which have different interests, you know, are thinking and doing different things, that's kind of, you know, kind of the challenge there. And what we kind of recognise is you can't control that. You can't coordinate it. But what you can do is hope for some degree of coherence, and that's where information comes in. So how do we make sure there's at least visibility? How does the system see itself and then is able to respond to what it's seeing elsewhere in a way which is good for the individual actors, but also is kind of aligned to kind of what these sort of shared, shared goals, you know, kind of, or, or as they've been articulated. Um, and again, you know, I'll keep on coming back to the, the fact that these shared goals ex- exist. You know, you can't take those things for granted. And that's why a lot of these initiatives take a long time around the kind of social capital building, you know, and the articulation of like collectively what, you know, does, you know, a, a group of people, you know, want to do and where they want to go and then be able to sort of hold those things as true over the longer term. But the governance mechanisms really come around to say, you know, as we start to do things, how do we learn from those things? How do we um, adapt to emergence within the system? Um, And how do we know that we're on track? So, yeah, governance ain't a particularly sexy thing to fund, but unless you have those kind of coherence mechanisms, again, you're just going to see sort of, you know, effort become more um, left to chance, more ad hoc, um, and, you know, potentially kind of getting fragmented again. Uh, so, so I, I, sorry, I think as I said, so there's a, there's a, in terms of an appetite for this or a desire to work in this way, we have to, I think, reprioritize, you know, funding programs leads to outputs. <laughs> there's, but that, but this, uh, supporting that coherence, appreciating how to build the engine that drives system innovation forward is a deeply important part of this work that is not really um, all the examples who were considered in the context of this project struggled around that resourcing and the arguments and the cases they had to make about that resourcing. And yet all of them, my understanding of all of them said without that, it was just impossible for the work to um, have impact. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, and the work that we do around systems capital is really trying to sort of go deeper on this specific issue of resourcing and think about what are the sustainable mechanisms, you know, which come from the commons to serve the commons rather than just relying on, you know, um, enlightened capital holders. And what I mean by that is, and this is showing up in a number of ways, you know, um, there's work being done thinking around, well, if we, you know, kind of get city transformation right, it's highly likely that this, you know, property in the city will become more valuable. So is there some kind of way we can link a future land levy, you know, um, and and basically find a way to kind of raise capital against future appreciation now? But you're then, you know, through that, you'll get in um, a pot of resource, which is actually funded from commons benefit in order to resource com- commons acting. In here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we're seeing the emergence of self-sovereign landscapes very early, 
it's interesting to think that if you have a landscape which can own its own assets and that landscape seeks to regenerate itself and then can interact with kind of, you know, uh, biodiversity and carbon markets to generate economic wealth, what would that landscape then choose to invest those resources in? Probably for the well-being of living things, you know, um, in its surrounds. So again, it's another mechanism which is um, trying to sort of find how do we generate or capture value flows in the system and repurpose them to resource these kind of, you know, things which are in the commons interest. Ironically, the the biggest, boldest thing is hiding in plain sight. It's called the tax system. You know, we all contribute <laughs> significant resources into a collective entity, which then redistributes those resources across the system. But I think we've all sort of seen that the way the sort of government has come to work now is not necessarily able to do these more kind of adaptive and agile, you know, you know, sort of means of investment. So yeah, we've got we've actually got the machinery in place. It's just the machinery isn't fit for purpose for the things that we think we need to do. So 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 in so in summing up, um, Alex, the the point of the report is to really say System, how we unlock the potential in systems to innovate for challenge for to address complex challenges really requires us to develop understandings, capabilities, and insights around new forms of coalescence and new ways to resource collaboration that unlocks uh, in the coming together unlocks new ways of thinking and working to address these challenges at scale. The report is the beginning of. Um, trying to create a platform to in, bring more people into this work, into this way of working and thinking. Um, uh, I think in some ways, Alex, some, sometimes it just all seems too hard. Do you know what I mean? It all seems too complex. It's not tangible or grounded in practice. But the truth is this type of way of thinking and working can be most small and large. It doesn't have to be how I'm going to change the whole way a city uh, deals with energy transition. It can be how in my community I solve a problem of related to a particular, you know, a much sort of smaller concern. Just in finishing, can we ground it in how relevant that is to, you know, people working on social challenges more broadly um, and how you think this applies in large and small ways? So, so that's the thing about, you know, the pushback around this is just too difficult and complex. And it's just like, well, get over it, you know, because, you know, the challenges we face are difficult and complex and we need to evolve different ways of working to meet them. So I'm kind of not particularly sympathetic to, to that response. And I've also kind of, I also note that there's, uh, I think there's a common sense of people's sort of urgency and frustration is I want to do action. I want to be involved in action. And now I quite often hear in the next sort of sentence, we're really bad at collaborating with others. And it's just like, well, this is the point. And these two things actually aren't mutually exclusive. This is about sort of investing in ways of organising to enable more joined up ways of, of acting. And the fact that we're not doing it at the moment and we have to shift our mindsets and our skill sets and ways of working towards it is just a challenge. But it's better than the alternatives. The, I think the thing is, yes, you know, um, small, small to big. Um, and certainly my experience is I'm, I'm looking around, you know, out here in New Zealand at the moment. I'm also looking around Australia. 
and I'm seeing small to big kind of you know uh, attempts to organise in you know in you know in more systemic ways everywhere. So it's not like we're trying to suddenly you know like promote a form of practice which currently doesn't exist. We're basically saying this is already happening, but we can we can do it and support it better. So I think that's the real prov provocation. I mean, when we put the recommendations for a report, and we were kind of a little bit uneasy at the end, because a lot of time with reports, you, you come up with the recommendations and there isn't a direct follow-through. And I, I think there's a certain sense that that's the case in this one as well. I've, I've found that the report seems to be useful to people when they are actively holding or trying to, you know, speak to funders or, you know, progress initiatives. And that this has kind of put a sheet on the ghost. It's given... Um, structure to suit to ideas and um, uh, you know and think and experiences you know which then they're able to point to and are, and rearticulate themselves. So I think that you know it's kind of had a distributed effect. But the last thing I'll say, Liz, and I've been thinking, uh, I've been speaking with colleagues here. You know, like what I would see as a, a next logical step would be I would love to do a kind of you know. Um, a sense of scoping, and now I'm in this country, so let's say in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and regardless of thematics, regardless of sort of, you know, context, you know, you know, whether it's social or commercial, just to get a sense of where are initiatives going on in this country at this time. And then the next question would be to say is, what's the potential benefit of making these things visible to each other? And have some degree of kind of you know spillover of learnings you know and you know shared experience. And then the next thing I would say is by making those connections, do we start to surface common needs that then we can actually better sort of you know facilitate and get behind? And then does this give us the basis to do more applied research to actually test things to figure out how we can make some of this stuff that we can still find on our way with work better? And then if we get good knowledge, how do we use that knowledge to inform people with power and resources to say, look, this is going on. It's absolutely aligned to the things that you want to do as a human that wants to stick around on a planet and have a good life. So how do we start to redirect the big structures and capital pools to better serve these things which are really promising and hopefully sort of create bridges to, to, to you know, the better futures that I think all of us want to live in? Well, Alex, the Menzies Foundation is completely aligned with you around that ambition. We see, you know, there's a lot of conversations about what's catalytic philanthropy or what systems transformation looks like. We think that the beginning, that the work that we've uh, started with you offers a massive opportunity for us to build a community of practice that deepens people's opportunity to engage with this work and builds out the insight, skills and capabilities to be truly instrument, instrumental in impact at scale. So... Thank you so much, Alex, for your contribution Thank today you. and for exploring the report. Um, as I said, the report is really stage one of this work and Alex, the Menzies Foundation looks forward to working with you and encourages any others listening to this podcast to connect uh, with us as we explore next steps in what we think is absolutely fundamental to addressing the wicked complex challenges the world faces and to imagine a more, what was it, uh, distributive and regenerative future. Thank you, Alex, very much. Thanks, Liz.